Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Next week, we're going to have our men's retreat speaker, a good friend of mine, Pastor Jeff Estes, will be here. You do not want to miss next Sunday night. The following Sunday night is Fifth Sunday Fellowships, and that means that will be three weeks until we're back in our study of the, the life of Jesus, journey with Jesus, an overview of the life of Christ. In that week, we're going to talk about one busy day in Galilee, a day that really illustrates for us the heart of Jesus's public public ministry, his teaching ministry, and also the dramatic uh, signs and wonders that he performed. Then we're going to do adventures in missing the point, the life and times of the disciples. All right, that'll be the next week. And then we're going to come to a very important, the last session, the end game, the, the journey that Jesus took to the cross. Jesus was not the passive victim of circumstances. He was a willing sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And so that's what we have laid out uh, before us. I don't know if anyone knows a Christmas curmudgeon. Do you know a Christmas curmudgeon? Do you know anybody like that? I'm the Christmas curmudgeon in our family. No pumpkin spice until October. No Christmas songs till the day after Thanksgiving. Those are the edicts that I lay out in my family. A pastor is supposed to rule well his own home. These edicts are routinely violated by my wife and children. (laughs) But you probably know that person that maybe has a particular point of view of something about Christmas. I remember once we were in a church on deputation uh, to go to the mission field. And this church was just covered with greenery. And the pastor from the pulpit called one of the church members to open the service in prayer. And I'm not making this up. He stood up in the middle of the church service and said, Dear Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of everyone in this building to know that greenery is pagan worship and that shouldn't be up in anyone's church or house. And he went on about a five-minute rant about greenery and whether it was appropriate for Christmas or not. You may have some very strong opinions about Christmas and how it ought to be celebrated, okay? By the way, there are actually some good indication, good history that the greenery in a Christmas tree actually has Christian origins. And if you want to read about that, I have an article I can send you about that. But I know that some people have very strong opinions about Christmas and how it should be celebrated. I am very interested in those very strong opinions about Christmas and how it ought to be celebrated. And if if something I say tonight upsets you or something like that, please email that to me. Uh, my email address is dave.sturtzbaugh at tricityministries.org. And so if anything I say tonight messes with your Christmas and your strong opinions, please email those. That would, be, that would make for a fun uh, pastor's meeting. <laughs> In all seriousness, we're going to talk about the real story of Christmas. And there are a couple of things that we might have in the typical nativity narrative that we have playing in our culture and in our heads that may not line up exactly with what the Bible says or what was likely to have happened in the first century in Palestine. And I'm going to point some of those things out. I just want to put, I just trying to be lighthearted here a little bit because I do know some people have strong opinions and you could walk out of here with some very strong opinions about exactly where the manger was, okay? None of these things matter for our eternal destinies or souls, okay? 
And so I just want to lay that out there. The reason, though, it's important is because building off of what we talked about last week, we talked about the reliability of the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. I have you open to Luke chapter 2, but I actually want to read the first verses of Luke chapter 1 to get us started. Just to remind us, what type of material are we dealing with when we're dealing here with the Gospels? Listen to how Luke describes the project that he undertook. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, okay, they were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Luke presents his entire enterprise as a historical project. He's talking to eyewitnesses. And we see this probably most clearly actually in the nativity narrative. Because in the nativity narrative, we have twice in the nativity narrative this statement that Mary pondered these things in her heart. How, do, how would Luke have known that Mary pondered those things in her heart? I'll tell you what I think. I think most likely Mary told Luke that, he had, that she had pondered those things in her heart. Now, this is one reason why the nativity narrative in Luke is very different than the nativity narrative in Matthew. The nativity narrative in Matthew is a typical dad story. The baby's born, and then he's 30. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I have a kid. I think I have, how many? We have four. We have four? Yeah. yeah, that's a dad, right? But in Luke, we get the details of what happened. It's only in Luke that we get these details. It's only in Luke that we get details related to the childhood of Jesus. And so it's definitely a mom's story. And of course, the Holy Spirit wants us to have these two different accounts and coming from different angles for purposes other than just the difference between moms and dads. But we see the insight here. So this is why we're messing with Christmas a little bit because these are eyewitness accounts. We're dealing with history and we made that case last week that this is accurate history. We have good reasons to understand that. So if we take the nativity narrative and we're going to be primarily right here in Luke and we treat it as history, what do we see unfold? All right. You might know this, uh, this story you know, the notice came in the mail that uh, they were supposed to go down to Bethlehem to be registered for taxation, and that slipped to the bottom of the pile. And so just about the time that Mary was about 36 weeks or so along, Joseph was like, um, Mary, <laughs> uh, we're going to have to load up on a donkey and take a long trip from northern Israel down to southern Israel. That would have been fun for a woman about eight months pregnant, wouldn't it? Just hop on a donkey and ride in a donkey for multiple days. No, I don't think that would have been much fun, okay? The only time I've thought that maybe the Catholics have something when they say that Mary was, was sinless, didn't commit any sin, is the fact that she, she, didn't, mar she didn't murder Joseph on this trip, okay? <laughs> yeah, that would not have been great to travel from Nazareth, and then just about the outskirts of Bethlehem, right? Mary's water breaks, 
And now they're on a frantic search, hoping that Motel 6 left the light on, right? And so they go to Motel 6, all booked. They go to the Super 8, all booked. There are no hotels left, no rooms left. And finally, they find a sympathetic innkeeper who allows them to spend the night in a cozy stable, and there the child is born, okay? That particular narrative is a narrative, actually, that comes from a medieval Catholic uh, novel about the birth of Christ, and it became a predominant sort of narrative and story of what happened, all right? And it's sort of what we have today. Um, there are some things that are true about it. They did travel from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. Mary was pregnant during that trip, all right? But there are some things that the text would actually indicate to us uh, that that's probably not exactly how it happened, okay? Let's go to Luke chapter 2 and let's make some observations. Again, we're reading accurate history, eyewitness accounts of the things that transpired, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, taxed, okay? They didn't have to travel to Bethlehem to pay the tax. They had to travel to Bethlehem for a census. That's what he was doing. He was gathering a census of the land, trying to figure out how many people were in Israel so that he could then build an expectation of how much tax revenue to expect out of Israel. That's what was going on. So everyone had to travel back to their home area so that they could be counted in this census. And it was about taxation. That census was to build the revenue expectations. And this census first took place, by the way, notice just the historical setting that Luke is trying to give us here. This took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Okay, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, up in the north, that's the northern part, and he came unto Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, I just want to comment here quickly on the fact that Joseph, we learn here, is from Bethlehem in the south. Why is he up in the north in Nazareth? We don't know this for sure, but I'll at least give you an idea of why he might have been up in Nazareth. We know what Joseph's occupation was, okay? Joseph, we're told, was a technon. That's the word that we have in Greek, a technon. Um, We get our word technology out of the same Greek root. He was a technon. Now, that's translated carpenter in our English Bibles. Here's the thing. When we think of carpenter, we think of someone who does fine woodwork, makes furniture, And you may see this in common depictions of Jesus's childhood, you know, that, you know, Joseph has like a workshop and he's carving, you know, horses and making chairs and things like that. In fact, there's a, there's a Catholic story of, uh, about Jesus doing a miracle in his childhood where Joseph had made a chair for a customer, except the the customer was a little girthier than uh, Joseph had anticipated. So when the customer came to pick up his chair, it was too small. And so um, in this story, this apocryphal story, Joseph gets on one end of the chair, Jesus gets on the other end of the chair, and they pull and widen out the chair, all right? So the, the issue is that's not what the word technon means. Technon does not refer to someone who does fine woodwork, most likely. The word technon re- refers to someone who builds 
houses, most likely. And what were houses made out of during that time? They were made out of primarily stone. Now, there would be woodwork and things like that. So I think we can imagine that Joseph was rather handy with tools. And he certainly could do some woodwork that you would need to do in building homes. But he was also probably a stonemason and things like that. He was, we might use the word contractor to, to describe what Joseph did. All right, We still use the word carpenter sometimes that way. Someone who builds a house. Someone who might be a contractor. And this is what's interesting. Up in Galilee... At the time that this story all takes place, there was a city called Zippori. And sometime if you go to Israel, you might actually stop by Zippori. It's a beautiful place in Galilee. And it's known for having some beautiful mosaics in the archaeological digs there in Zippori. There are beautiful mosaics in the floor. Now, what's interesting is if you look at those mosaics, and we know that those houses go back to the time of Christ, those mosaics in this town of Zippori, up in Galilee, are actually mosaics that are honoring the Greco-Roman gods. Okay, so Zippori was a Greek city where mostly Gentiles lived, and the wealthy homes there were owned by Gentiles, by Greeks, who had depictions of the Greek gods. That wouldn't have been in a Jewish home. And that city of Zippori was actually being rebuilt. It had been razed to the ground by the Romans, and about the time that this all would have been happening, that entire city was being rebuilt. And so this is just a theory. No, I don't have any way to prove this. But it may be that Joseph, as a young man, had traveled up from Bethlehem to work on the projects that were going on in Zipporah. A pretty good-sized city. There would have been good work there. As a good Jew, he would not have stayed and lived inside of that. And so he found a village not far away from Zippori, a nice Hebrew village, a village named Nazareth. And Nazareth and Zippori are about four miles apart from each other. And we know it was, at least what we know is that it was being rebuilt at the same time that this is going on. So that's a plausible explanation for why Joseph would have been up in Galilee, even though he's a southerner, all right? People had trouble understanding him and he was trying to find where to get the grits, okay? Biscuits and gravy. You guys are a tough crowd tonight. I'm just going to be straightforward with you, okay? You're nervous about what I'm going to do to Christmas. Is that why? Is that why? Can we loosen up a little bit? It's fine. This is October. You can rebuild Christmas by the time December comes around, okay? It'll be fine. So that might be why he's there. But I want you to listen to what it says in verse 6. Can we read these words together? Can you read these first words, verse 6? So it was, read the next words, that while they were, while they were there, okay, while they were there, the days were accomplished for her to be delivered, okay? Um, I'd like just to use this verse to point out that Joseph wasn't a knucklehead, okay? He didn't wait until Mary was very pregnant to load her up on a donkey to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. She is pregnant on that journey, but she's not very pregnant, okay? When they get down to Bethlehem, it is while they were there that the days were accomplished for her to give birth. Now, how long are they there? We don't know. 
But the whole idea of this, you know, she's on the donkey, her water broke, she's in, she's in you know, labor, and they're frantically searching for a hotel room, that's just not what happened. We know that Joseph and Mary got into Bethlehem in plenty of time to get her settled for what was going to happen. And again, I'm trying to be a little lighthearted here, but the picture and the portrait that we see of Joseph, even though we don't have lots about Joseph, what we do see about Joseph is consistent. He was a faithful, caring, hardworking man. All right? And so I think it's worth us noticing this, that he gets her down there in plenty of time. He was a caring husband. I think he was a caring father, earthly father, to Jesus. That's the picture and the portrait that we get of Joseph. Joseph is really someone that we ought to hold up as, as a model of biblical manhood. And we've heard some of that from Pastor Ken. You can look at that in Matthew and see. He really was a man after God's own heart. He didn't want to put away Mary when he found out that, that she was pregnant. And he was a man of courage and faith to move forward with the pregnancy, even though she was pregnant um, outside of wedlock. All right, And that whole virgin birth, that whole virgin conception, Holy Spirit conception story didn't play well with everybody else. He had to accept that by faith. He had to step forward in courage. So he was a man of faith. He was a man of courage. He was a man who worked hard and he was a caring man. And he gets Mary down to Bethlehem in plenty of time. So while they were there, the days were accomplished for her to be delivered. Here's the next thing I want you to pay attention to. It's in verse 7. Here's the word in, okay? The word in. And so when they get there, they lay the baby in a manger and we're told because there was no room for them in the inn. The word in, the English word in, occurs in another place in our English Bibles. In the Gospel of Luke. Does anyone know another place where the word in occurs? In the Gospel of Luke, in English, the English word in. Okay, it occurs in the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan finds the man beaten up on the road and at his own expense takes the man to an inn and has the man cared for in that inn. He pays the innkeeper. He says to the innkeeper, whatever he needs, take care of him. I will square up the bill. Right? Do you guys remember that? That is the same word in English, but in Greek it is not the same word. Okay? The word in, that is in the story of the Good Samaritan, describes a lodge or a dwelling place that would be alongside a road. It was a travel lodge. Okay, basically what we might think of as a hotel. Um, I'm sure they weren't very fancy. There was probably a common eating area and some simple places to sleep, but they were primarily built on longish roads, like the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem, places where you could lay over if you got caught in the middle of the night while you were journeying. That is not the word that occurs here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. The word that occurs here is the word kataluma. Okay, a kataluma means guest room. That's what the word means. That's how the word is used. It means guest room. There was no room for them in the guest room. 
in towns and cities in Israel in the first century, there were not what we would think of today as hotels, or if you think about sort of a medieval setting in England, inns. That didn't exist back there in those days. You have to understand the ancient Near Eastern culture, the culture that Jesus was born into was a culture of hospitality. Where did travelers stay when they were traveling through a town? Anybody who would take them in. They stayed in homes. And this was the cultural expectation that hospitality would just be, was at the core of a person's expectation. When you could go into a town, you could find someone and you could stay with them. We see this in a number of places, actually, in the gospel stories. You have the person who has unexpected guests show up, and, he does, and she doesn't have any food, and so she bugs her neighbor, give me bread, give me bread, give me bread. And just so he can get a good night's sleep, he gives her bread, right? You see this in Jesus, in his teaching, when he says this, even the Son of Man, or the, he says this, even the birds of the air, right? And the foxes have a place to sleep, but the Son of Man is going to sleep under the stars. That statement in that culture meant this, that Jesus was going to be rejected by the culture and the society. He was not going to be extended the normal customs and courtesies that a hospitality-driven culture would extend to just a stranger. The, the world was going to turn hostile to him. That's what he's talking about. So the normal expectation for a traveler coming into town is that they could stay in a home. And especially true if you're coming to your hometown. We live in a very mobile society today. But back in the days of Christ, most people journeyed very a short distance from their homes. This was weird for me when we lived here in Arizona. We lived in Arizona and, you know, no one's from Arizona, Right? I married Bethany, she's a native zoning, but almost no one is from Arizona. And this was especially true when I came to school here at IBC uh, in 1999. I know that's a long time ago for all of you over here. Yeah. In 1999, everyone was moving here from somewhere else. And so we did school here, and then I moved to Pennsylvania, and I got a job at a small uh, country uh, hardware store where I was the customer service manager, and we'd have people come in, and people would come into our store and they would say, this is such a great store. I'm so glad I found it. I just moved into town. And I'd be like, oh, that's amazing. Where did you move from? And they would list a town 10 miles away. You just moved into town? <laughs> that's town, right? For us in the West, we run over to San Diego on the weekend, right? <laughs> These people in that area... They lived there. Their cousins lived across the street. Their aunt lived down, you know, the whole families owned the whole block. And there were like six last names in our area, okay? Pennsylvania Dutch last names. Blandis, Moyer, those were the names all around us. In that time, in the days of Christ, this was even more true. He's coming back to his kinfolk, okay? He's coming back home. He doesn't get there the night the baby's being born. There was a cultural expectation of hospitality. Here's the deal. When he gets there, all the guest rooms are occupied. Okay, so it's not a hotel, it's the guest room. We made this point already. Jesus, or Joseph, excuse me, Joseph was a caring husband. Joseph was a caring husband. He has time to get his wife comfortably situated. So, where was Jesus born? We have the clue here that he was laid in a manger. 
Okay, so nothing here says that he was born in a stable. Okay, you can read the nativity narrative from beginning to end and you will not find a mention of a stable. The whole reason why we have Jesus pictured in a stable is because of the word manger. He was laid in a manger. Now, if you had a baby and you weren't wealthy and you couldn't order a bassinet from Bye Bye Baby and you needed a place to lay, lay an infant, what might you do? You might have built it. If you knew what to do with tools, you might have built it. You might have found one and cleaned it and gotten it ready. I just want you to understand, Joseph has had time to prepare for this moment. He's either found a manger or he has built a manger. And that's a decent bassinet for, for a newborn baby. Properly padded and all those kind of things. So there's nothing in the text that would require Jesus to have been born in a manger. Now, I know another opinion, and it's got some validity to it, is that Jesus was born, you've heard it right, in a cave. Because that was a normal place to keep animals. So we've made a connection. There's a manger, so there must have been animals. And so Jesus perhaps was born uh, in a cave. They did keep animals in caves. I will just say this, that the the people that kept animals in caves were typically um, shepherds. It wasn't like everyone had their own little family cave. There are caves near Bethlehem, but they're not everywhere. So personally, I I think that there are some arguments that could be made for the cave. But again, the whole reason we're looking for a place where animals are is because of the word manger. But just because they laid him in a manger doesn't mean there have to be animals in the scene. Now, I know your nativity has animals and they're cute. You can keep them, I promise. I'm not going to come to your house and be like, you heretic, okay? What are these sheep doing here, okay? That's not what we're talking about, okay? So, what did it likely look like? Well, here is a typical, like, top-down shot of a typical home, and we actually know this from archaeological digs and other things. This is a typical home. Now, you'll notice some things. Not every kid has their own bedroom, okay? Okay? It's a very rare in the world, the American experience where every kid has their own bedroom, okay? Nowadays, they want their own bedroom, their own living room, right? Everything else. This is not normal. The normal common house had one main living room. And this is interesting. Hospitality was such a part of their culture that the one extra room that they did build was not the gourmet kitchen, it was the guest room. That was normal. It was usually on the back. Sometimes it was up on the top floor. In fact, the upper room that Jesus and his disciples used for the Last Supper is a cataluma. It's a top floor guest room. And then there was one main living area. Again, this doesn't strike our American ears as normal where we, pri- where we have a high value on privacy and things like that, but it was normal for these families to all live in the same living area. Okay, and in Jerusalem, or excuse me, Bethlehem in particular, the houses were usually built on a hill, so they were, they were sort of a terracing effect, and so there were often stairs that led down to a front area of the house, and this is where animals were kept commonly in a normal home, okay? You had people that had larger herds, but most families in this area would have had their own little small group of animals. You know, they would have had a few sheep. Maybe they've got a cow, a donkey. 
Maybe they've got some other livestock, small livestock. This is normal in agrarian cultures to have some small animals that belong to your family. And it was also normal to bring those animals inside at night. Now that's strange to us, except we do it too, right? We just, you know, call our animals Fido and we let them on the couch, okay? So we do the same things. They would have animals brought in. That was a way to keep them safe. That was a way to keep them from being stolen, things like that. So it was actually normal for there to be animals inside the house. They would bring them in at night. Now there's one good Bible example of this. Do you remember in the book of Judges, there's a man named Jephthah and he makes a rash vow. He's coming back to his house. Do you guys know this story? He's coming back to his house after a victory and he wants to praise God. And so he makes this rash vow as he's coming back to his house and he says, whatever comes out my door first, I'm going to offer up to you as a sacrifice. What was Jephthah expecting to come out the door first thing in the morning? What was he expecting? Not his daughter. He was expecting the animals to come out because the animals were inside. You'd get up in the morning and you'd open the door, you know, and the woman of the house would shoo the flock out to go graze around. That's what he was expecting. He was expecting the animal to come out the door first thing in the morning as he was coming home. And to his surprise, his daughter comes out first. So he was expecting animals to come out. That would have been normal in an agrarian society like this. And here's what's interesting. If you're following, you have like a hill and the house would be built on a hill. So you kind of have a tier. There are actually archaeological digs from around this area where the mangers, the feeding troughs are actually dug down into the floor in the main living area. And so the animals being at a slightly lower level would actually feed. All right. So this would, in other words, it would not have been unusual to find a manger or some apparatus for feeding animals or animals in just a normal home. Okay. Have I ruined your Christmas yet? You still with me? Okay. So where was Jesus likely born? I think because of the hospitality expectations, because of the description here and what people would have thought when we're told that the Cataluma was full, I think that Jesus was probably born in a main living area of a regular home. He would have been there long enough One of their relatives is having a baby in that hospitality culture. They would have figured out a way for him, for her to have been born in at least as best they could comfortable situations. Can I prove that to you? No, I can't prove that to you. I just think that's probably the best case and the best understanding of exactly where Jesus was born. And again, why are we going into this kind of detail? We're doing this because even if I'm wrong, we're at least attempting to treat the scriptures as history. We need to teach, take the gospels and read the stories of Jesus as history, as actual eyewitness accounts. All right? So they got there in plenty of time. The guest rooms were full. So where did they go? Well, there was a cultural expectation of hospitality. We know that Joseph was a caring husband, resourceful, hardworking, and looking after Mary. So I think he had time to find a suitable place for her to give birth. And so here's what I want to say. The external surroundings that Jesus was born in were extraordinary in exactly how extraordinary they were. And I actually want to make a point out of this because one of the things that is striking about the birth of Jesus 
is that while there are some extraordinary signs, and we're going to see that with the shepherds and things like that, while there are some extraordinary signs, the trappings of his birth were just extraordinary. This would not have surprised anyone to find a baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. It's unusual to us. It wouldn't have been unusual to these people. This is, what, this is what I want us to understand about that. Jesus Christ, God of very gods, creator of the universe, he's not born in a great palace. When the wise men come, right, where do they go? They go to Jerusalem, check in with the king there. They expect that this king of the Jews, the king's going to know about this. Everyone must know about this. The new king of the Jews is here. Well, Jesus was born in a simple home, an ordinary place. Now, obviously, there are extraordinary things about his birth, but the circumstances speak to us of humility. Who do the angels come to? Shepherds. Shepherds. We have romantic visions of shepherding. The only people with romantic visions of shepherding are people who have never shepherded, right? Go take care of livestock. I mean, remember the story of David? The run of the litter was out there with the sheep because all the other brothers had figured out how to get out of that. Every time there was a new son born to Jesse, everyone got excited. Okay, we're going to let David take care of the sheep now, right? Because everyone else had a better job. It was a lowly job. And one of the things that's remarkable about the story here in Luke is that the glorious coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is announced to lowly people. And where do they go? Do they go to some great palace? No, they go to a home a normal home, an average home in Bethlehem to see the new king. And so the glory of God is revealed here in the humility of our Savior and the circumstances into which he was born. And yet the child himself was anything but ordinary. We find out very clearly in the nativity narrative that Jesus was unique his birth was announced by angels. Pastor Ken has pointed this out, but have you ever noticed that the pervasive emotion of Christmas is fear? The angels always show up and say, don't be afraid. To Joseph and then to Mary and then to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Jesus's birth was announced by angels. His birth was supernatural. And I just want to make a point out of this. Jesus' birth is not the only supernatural, okay? It was not the only supernatural birth recorded in the Bible. Can you think of other examples of supernatural births? Okay, well, how about Sarah? Is that supernatural? Yes. What about Hannah? We're told there the Lord had closed her womb, and then after her prayer and her vow, the Lord opened her womb. So, Samuel comes about as a supernatural act of God. And those supernatural births are indications to those of us reading the story that God is on the move, that God is at work, that God hasn't forgotten his people Israel, that God is moving his plan forward. And so when we come to another supernatural birth, we know that God is moving. 
And yet this supernatural birth was supernatural in a way that none of those other births was supernatural because what has only happened once in all of human history is Jesus was born of a virgin. The virgin birth is an important doctrine. And let me tell you why. It's important because the Bible teaches it, all right? And to deny the virgin birth is to deny the veracity of Scripture. It's important because it indicates to us the uniqueness of Jesus among all other humans. And it's important theologically because in my belief, the virgin birth is the reason why Jesus was born without a sin nature, all right? Guys, we got to acknowledge this. Um, everyone who has an earthly father since Adam was born with a sin nature, okay? It's dad's fault, okay? So if you have a dad, the reason you have a sin nature is because your dad had a sin nature, okay? And I believe that God intervenes here so that Jesus is not born with an earthly father so that he will be born without a sin nature. And so the virgin birth is incredibly significant. And I know people say, but that's impossible. People aren't born of virgins, and that's the point, that's the point. This has happened exactly once. That's the point. If it happened all the time, it wouldn't be important. He was the greatest, excuse me, the greatest of prophets was sent to prepare his way. When we find out about John the Baptist, sometimes John the Baptist gets kind of diminished in our eyes, but that's only because we always see John the Baptist in contrast to Jesus. And in contrast to Jesus, he doesn't look like much. Well, that was the point too. But if you take Jesus out of the picture and you just compare John the Baptist to the other prophets of the Old Testament, John the Baptist is right up there on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament prophets. Okay? Jesus calls him the greatest. And yet the greatest prophet of all says, I am not worthy to unlatch his sandals. All of that to point to the greatness. If the greatest prophet of all time, who, by the way, was born of a supernatural but not virgin birth, came solely to point to the greatness of Jesus. Okay? This tells us that Jesus was unique. And he was unique because Jesus was fully human and fully God. And this has happened exactly once in human history. Jesus is unique because he is fully human and fully God. When we come back in three weeks, we're going to unpack this and try to at least orient our minds to how do we understand Jesus to be both fully human and fully God. Let me just say this to you as we close. Jesus was unique in history. He came 100% he is 100% God. He is fully God. But he takes on genuine, a genuine human nature. And that Jesus was both God and man is necessary for our salvation. And it shows us this. That unlike all other forms of false religion, which tell you that you are obligated to make your way to God, Biblical Christianity flips that around and says, your only hope is the fact that God made his way to us. And he does that in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. Born in humble circumstances. And yet he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
take some of that, absorb it. If you don't like it, don't, don't forget to email Pastor Dave. All right, let's close in a word of prayer.